welcome to the August 2012 edition of the Ordinary Means Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here uh, with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. And we're also here today with our special guest, Michael Ross. Uh, Mike is a pastor. Uh, he's pastored a, a number of churches, three in fact. He started Surfside Presbyterian Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, uh, went on from there after about 10 years to pastor Trinity Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, and is now pastoring Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. Uh, Mike Ross is the author of Preaching for Revitalization, and there you see where this ties in with our podcasts over the last several months on revitalization. We've been wanting to have Mike on and really talk about his uh, his in-depth work in doing this very thing, and particularly seeing revitalization come to the church through preaching. So, Mike, thank you for being on here with us today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Well, we wanted to start out a little bit with your, your story. Um, uh, we said before we came on here, we... We wanted you to know we didn't invite you on here just because you're the moder- now the moderator of the VCA. Okay. Uh, but congratulations on that. Well, thank you. And it's a, uh, it's it's a well a sweet honor. Yes, yeah. it's a well deserved honor. You've you've done a lot for our uh, for our denomination. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to be a revitalization pastor. How did what was your journey? Well, um, I, I probably came uh, from scratch. <laughs> I. Uh, I grew up in a very uh, uh, devout and con- consistent um, Roman Catholic family up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and in fact, when during my high school years, uh, from what would be the ninth through the twelfth grade, um, I, um, I actually went away to a monastery up around Toledo, Ohio, and studied to be a Catholic priest. Um, and it, it was there uh, in my final year, my senior year, that um, I was in the chapel one day reading in a little New Testament that they had given us. I was reading in the Gospel of John and, and came across John 10.10. 10. I, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And I, I just, at that moment, said to the Lord in prayer, I said, Lord, I, I don't have this abundant life. I have religion. Um but I don't have the sense of an abundant life. And I made my decision at that moment, like it took 20 minutes, that I was going to leave. I was going to leave the monastery and not be a priest. Um, I had had some some lingering doubts all along, so I, I went um, immediately to the, to the rector's office and told him, and he convinced me uh, to finish my senior year so I wouldn't lose my credits and I could matriculate out into college at, at the end of my senior year. So I did, and then I went to the Ohio State University, uh, which was the opposite end of the world from a small um, cloister to this. At that time, and I think it still may be the largest um, campus in America. And it was um, during those days of the Vietnam uh, protests and uh, campus closings and campus shootings and all that horrible stuff. Um, and uh, then I, I went into the military for two years. Um, I was drafted and so I went into ROTC and went in as a lieutenant. And uh, in all in all those years, I, I I would have to say that I was seeking for something. Um, it wasn't until after uh, I got out of the Army and finished my master's degree at, that I moved to uh, Memphis, Tennessee to work with a Fortune 500 company. And I met uh, a, 
an evangelical guy there became my friend, and then he began to take me to his church, and under the preaching of the word and his witness and uh, just experiencing the fellowship of the saints there in that church that I became a Christian in 1976. Um, you were, 20, you were 27? I was correct? 27. Okay. Uh, met my wife uh, that same year. We were married the next year. Uh, and then at the age of 30, um, uh, I, uh, in 1979, I, I left for Columbia Biblical Seminary over in Columbia, South Carolina. We originally went there to be trained for foreign mission work. And while I was in seminary, um, my professors and the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, where um, Sinclair Ferguson is now pastor, we, we had a different pastor there. They, they sat me down and said, you know, you really, we think you really ought to be in the pulpit and be in pastoral ministry. We think you're more gifted that way than as a missionary. And I, I think they were right. Mm. So um, from there, we went to um, our first call, which was in Myrtle Beach or Surfside Beach, South Carolina. We we were organizing uh, a small group that came out of the Methodist Church, and that became the Surfside Presbyterian Church, PCA Church. We were there for ten years. Then went to my wife's hometown, which was uh, difficult for her because you know a prophet has honor everywhere except mm. in hometown. We were there at Trinity Church, which was a revitalizing effort uh, for fourteen years. Uh, that's when I became good friends with Ligon Duncan and uh, linked in with his network um, and the, um, you know, Twin Lakes Fellowship and so forth. Yeah. And then in 2006, um, folks prevailed upon me to come over here to Christ's Covenant, which had had a very difficult um, five or six years, and um, and do kind of a revitalizing work, which I'm in the midst of right now. So I've come from uh, pre-Reformation Christianity to evangelical Christianity to the Reformed faith to pastoral ministry and uh, it's been a <laughs> it's been an interesting and, journey <laughs> and you're you're 110 years old now I, yeah I feel like that <laughs> I'm actually 63 and I look like I'm 105 yeah oh no you don't <laughs> they, they're wearing me down <laughs> when it takes something at at uh, to come to a church that you know is struggling yes it it is but you know most churches are struggling. Uh, or they're, I'll tell you this, Sean. They're either struggling or they will be. Yes. Yes. Um, and there's, uh, it's you know, revitalizing work is just uh, lock and stock with the calling. Um, unless you're unless you're planting a church, you're probably going to be revitalizing. And if you stay in that church plant long enough to get it uh, organized, probably within a decade, uh, you're going to have to put on different hat and become a revitalizer. It's just inevitable. It, and it shouldn't surprise us. It's, you know, um, atrophy, uh, declension is built into the fallen world's DNA. Uh, so every institution that's human, including the church, is going to experience that. Uh, just like we have our dry periods in our own spiritual life and we experience renewal or refreshment, churches are just a body life and they got to go through the same cycles. It's just inevitable. What happens, Mike, do you think, uh, I, I agree with you, couldn't agree with you more. Um, what happens when churches don't embrace that as a part of what happens in a fallen world? Well, th they die. Uh, yeah. And the reason, most of the time, uh, it's very slow, oftentimes a relatively painless death. Uh, and, and we have all kinds of euphemism for it. You know, the, the neighborhood changed or um, we became an aging church. All the young people moved away. But really, those are uh, 
euphemisms for uh, a slow spiritual death due to a spiritual declension. Um, I, I, I didn't put this in the book on revitalization because I hadn't really thought about it yet, guys, but I'm convinced that the reason most churches don't experience revitalization is because their theology does not allow for that. They, they're almost dispensational in their thinking. There was, there was the work of Christ, then Pentecost, then this launch of the New Testament church and the filling of the Spirit, and then there's not going to be anything other than that. We, we kind of coast down to a very, um, petered out, defeatist kind of end, and finally we get relief when Jesus comes back. And that's, they don't have a theology of revival. Um, is that what took you to the Edwards, obviously yeah, yeah I uh, was going to say is that what took you to the Puritans yes it was and it was uh, actually um, um, Ligon Duncan who put me on to it um, he, he was my assistant at the time that I got to uh, Trinity and I had been reading some things by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones mm-hmm. um, Ian Murray um, Richard Owen Roberts um, and others and Lig said, well, you know, Mike, you really ought to read uh, Edward's stuff on revival. And that's where I found a whole new, um, a, a, a reformed, biblical, experiential, historical perspective on the theology of revival. That God could actually do something in the midst of, of our age. That that is what God intends to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, Edward's, this isn't exact quote, but the gist of what he says when he's writing about uh, revival is that... Um, the history of the church shows that uh, God makes advancements through outpourings or effusions of extraordinary grace. In other words, he, he, he takes the church historically from reawakening to reawakening, and it's these troughs of, uh, you know, the crescendo of revival and then declension and then revival that is the normal pattern of church history. And you don't hear that. You don't hear that in seminary. You don't hear that. You don't see that in most books. Uh, we're so methodologically driven that, that um, and maybe that's why we don't like it because it's kind of outside of our control. Hmm. We can't work. Up, and um, so we'll work at revitalization almost, as you say, as a, a church growth kind of technique. Hmm. Now, um, this is interesting coming from you with your, with your background in business. Mm-hmm. How did you... How did you avoid the CEO mentality coming into the church? Well, I don't think I did avoid it. I think if you went back to, uh, if we could go back in time and you talk to the people at uh, um, Surfside Presbyterian Church in Myrtle Beach, they would say, well, Pastor Ross came uh, out of seminary and he brought us two things. He brought us three things, expository preaching, a good organization for how to, you know, run the ministries of the church and a CEO mentality. Because, quite frankly, that's those were the books that I read in seminary. Yeah. And when I came out of seminary in 1982, the church growth movement was at its uh, climax. It was just, in, you know, everything was church growth. And uh, it wasn't until I got to Jackson and uh, I began to read, um, I think, better things theologically and... Um, face an older congregation that had uh, said, and in so many words, you know, we've been there and done that, that I really had to say, Lord, there's got to be something other than this and something better. 
about that time, uh, another friend of mine, Harry Reader, um, was uh, writing about revitalization, and he helped to shape a lot of my thinking on it as well. So, uh, you know, I didn't come by any of this originally. I'm not the kind of person who comes up with novel ideas. I'm a used Apple kind of guy. Yeah, the, be- uh, the best ideas are, are stolen. That's right. But it was through Ligon's theological influence and Harry's experience in revitalizing churches that I really kind of shaped my own um, approach to things. Yeah, Mike, there's a lot of people, you know, sort of out in the revitalization world. I've had the privilege to begin making friends um, outside of the PCA, the denomination that all three of the guys on the phone are ordained in for our listeners who may not know our lingo. Um, uh, and what I find out in the rest of the world is that infrequently is preaching thought of as a primary way that revitalization comes about. Um, why do you think that is and how would you refute that? Well, I, I think probably it is not thought of that way. You're right. Um, because I think, in fact, it's interesting. I just, I was running a few minutes late for this interview with you guys because I just finished having lunch with the um, meeting for the first time, a, a wonderful guy who is the the president of uh, the Gordon-Conwell Seminary here in Charlotte. Oh, and, okay. Uh, our discussion over lunch was that uh, we're, we're concerned that um, that that the, the younger men coming into the ministry are more methodologic, method, method, methodologically driven than they are um, theologically driven. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, whether they're in the Acts 29 or the um, missiological uh, model or um, house church, they they seem to be hanging a lot of confidence on their methodology. And I think it's not that they're ignoring the message. I think they're just taking it for granted. Um, so, Which, of course, is the first step of losing it. Oh, it is. It is. And, you know, it's being replaced by music. Music is... I don't have to tell uh, mm. you guys, you're younger than I am. Music is huge for people 45 or 50 and younger. Um, and um, he said, you know, they want uh, they want music, they want small groups, and they want causes. Mm-hmm. And all three of those things are good. But, but he, you know, um, Tim, the president, said, said what they're not wanting is the ordinary means of grace. Mm. And it's not that they don't believe them. They just take them for granted. That these things will stay and always be there. So, what can we add to it? And in the long run, it's really a betrayal of a very subtle unbelief, and that is, I don't believe that what is in Acts chapter two will work in the modern world. Um, and and I uh, probably went through that myself in my thirties as a young pastor. Uh, but I saw that. The, the means of grace, preaching and worship and sacraments and fellowship and prayer, they do work. Uh, and, uh, you know, the method may package those that preaching in a different format. Uh, it may deliver it in a different context, but it's still uh, God's ordains instruments of grace that make the difference. And I'm just hoping that the younger men, as they gain more experience, read some books by older guys and maybe some Puritans and Reformers, revival men. They'll say, you know, uh, I've been on the wrong track. Because the danger is, over time, your method will become your message. Hmm. 
And these associations of churches are really um, a, a classic statement was we were in Presbytery uh, six months ago. And we have this time in our Presbytery where we have what we call the forum, pastor's forum, where we talk about openly about issues um, before we have to vote on them. Might be deaconesses or in tincture, all these sorts of things. And the one guy, older man, was saying, well, I'd like to talk about uh, why we have differences about this particular subject. And a younger guy stood up and said, well, you know, we're not really interested in having that conversation because content is less important to us. Method is what's important to us. Mm. And I said, boy, that is a red flag. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, I don't think that we have formally and even knowingly renounced preaching. It just... Um, is being overshadowed by things that are more glitzy. Yeah, yeah. We've we've had recently an influx of of younger families into our church, and this mm. is the first time that I've actually heard out of the mouth of somebody under thirty say, "We're so glad that you still sing hymns." Yeah, yeah. That's right. And so, I, so I think that demographic, hopefully, that younger post baby boomer era, is saying. Uh, you know what? It, that was fake, <laughs> right? And we'd in like fact, yeah, we'd like it, something it, real. That's right. In fact, you know what I found, Sean, is not the baby boomers who don't like preaching. They they were the ones who went to all these mega churches because there was you know a uh, John MacArthur or a, mm -hmm. a Harry Reader or a John Piper or somebody. It's Generation X. Yeah. Uh, quite without any offense intended, it's your generation uh, that has, uh, because of uh, being latchkey kids and all the divorces and all the oh, dysfunction yeah. of my generation's marriages and social context, um, that they ha they're they're ingrained with a deep strain of pessimism, and the belief that um, the hope that God could work through some extraordinary. Um, in an extraordinary way, through an ordinary means of grace, they're kind of saying, come on, you know, I think you're right. My children, who are millennials, they are wanting hymns, they're wanting preaching, they're wanting uh, a local church, a community, accountability, um, mercy ministry. They want multi-generational congregations yeah. where they have spiritual parents and grandparents and younger people in the whole mix and... Uh, so I think that bodes well for the future, if that's the trend. Well, and that fits right in with with what Jonathan Edwards said, that God works through these uh, generational movements. Yes, that's right. So let's talk a little bit about preaching. Your book is, is very much focused on preaching and all the different types of preaching that the Puritans did. I have in my notes here, uh, my summary is it's, it's the whole counsel of God to the whole people of God. Right. Um, can you... Talk a little bit about what does preaching need to be to encourage this kind of revitalization mentality? Well, it's, um, I think the, the key to doing it is to really um, sit down and wrestle with your definition, the pastor's definition of expository preaching. Um, before I, I did that study, I would have said that expository preaching is that you open up the Bible and you explain what's in the text. Um, 
you're textually driven. Um, I have revised that opinion a little bit. Uh, I tell the students when I um, lecture at a uh, seminary that there's actually a five-fold exegesis that a pastor has to do. He has to exegete, first of all, the text, that particular pericope or paragraph or parable or uh, psalm or whatever it is. And, he, and that text, how it's written literarily, and its thoughts and progressions and ideas, that forms the, the outline and the content of his message. He's not importing things into it. He's exporting or exegete, pulling out things that are in the text. But he also needs to understand, uh, he, he needs to exegete the context. Where does that text fall in the whole corpus, the whole body of Scripture? So he's looking at the genre, the themes, the time in redemptive history it was given. That's important. He has to exegete his own times and his own culture. Um, what does this text have to say to um American people in the 21st century. Uh, fourthly, he's got to exegete his congregation. What in the text and what in church history and what in our culture matches up with some um, holes in our lives in this congregation? Because every congregation is different. And finally, he has to exegete himself. He has to know his own strengths and weaknesses and I think one of the things that he's, it's, it's probably the most difficult thing to do in preaching is to, um, I think it was, um, it, I don't know, I think it was Lloyd-Jones or somebody, uh, I quote him in the book, I can't remember who it was, but one of them said preaching is biblical on theology, uh, bib biblical theology on fire and filtered through a man. Um, he can't get away from the fact that the word and the, and, and the preaching is coming through him, so there's a very personal um, um, transparent um, element to worship, but you can't preach your own stuff and uh, your own experience. And that may be the greatest weakness of young preachers today. They, they take the text as a springboard to talk about their experience as if their experience was normative and their experience was to shape the theology and practice of people. And that's bad exegesis. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the key to, I think, revitalized preaching is to say it has to be textually, contextually, and thematically driven. Um, and then we're matching our experience and our times to what's in the Bible. The Bible is normative, not what is going on in our lives, culture, or our congregation today. And I think maybe right now we're going through a period where we've got that backward, if that makes any sense. Mike, I'm struck that, that perhaps one of the things, because I, I agree with you, I, I think that uh, you've identified a, a number of things that are problematic about mo a lot of the preaching that I, um, that I see, that I hear, that I hear people talk about. Um, one of the things that strikes me is that for people in my generation that grew up, maybe in more church growthy type churches, I didn't have. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege to to sit under some very good preachers that that formed me. Um, uh, one did, of them. Did you know, Mike? Else. Did you know that Matt sat under you one Sunday? <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, he was smart enough not to do it too. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if you remember Mike um, Todd Underwood. That name is coastal, familiar. Coastal yeah. Carolina student, Panamanian guy. Anyways, mm-hmm. he, he was very much shaped at Surfside, but that was a lot of years, twenty years ago now. Mm-hmm. But um, I went to school at Faith um, uh, under Art Scott. Yeah, and uh, I went to school at Coastal Carolina, and um, I had the privilege of sitting under in my first churches. I had Ted Ragsdale and Art Scott, who were two two guys that you would know um, yes. as the first preachers, and then mm-hmm. even in seminary under a very good preacher. And, and um, I believe in preaching because I experienced God changing me through it. Right. And so I went through seminary believing that preaching could really change people. And now I preach in that way. And big surprise, people are changed. Yeah, that's right. And I, yeah. I wonder if there's a whole generation of people that, that went to more church growthy type churches where preaching, it wasn't believed that preaching could really change people. And so it didn't. Well, it and so they don't be. believe that it can. Uh, yeah, and it could be uh, because if you look at a lot of um, mega churches, they really are. Um, an effort to continue indefinitely all through life, the um, the college campus ministry experience. A large group, music for our generation, testimony in small groups. That's it. It's Campus Crusade for Christ or RUF or Campus Outreach or InterVarsity or the Navigators through all through life, um, and um, and in a sense. It's the testimony, the music, and the relationships that they think drive people and not the expounding of the word because most campus ministries don't expound the word. Uh, The guys aren't trained to do so. Um, I don't know if that's a fault of church growth so much as that's a fault of all uh, these people who, uh, uh, and the baby boomers, baby busters, and perhaps even the millennials who were converted in college. Uh, I agree with you, Matt, how you were converted will shape what you think the church and preaching is going to be like. I was converted under a very powerful preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so coming out of the Catholic Church, into I only went to one Protestant church, the one I was converted in. I just felt like if you'd have asked me in 1976, I'd say, oh, yeah, I guess all Protestant churches have powerful pulpits that exposit the word of God and call people to repentance and faith and obedience. I didn't know that was not the case, but that became my paradigm. If, on the other hand, I was converted through a small group Bible study in a dorm and a guy who discipled me and he was more of a, had the gifts of exhortation and teaching and counseling, then that became my paradigm of what a church should be. And I went to a church that uh, duplicated that on a large scale. And, of course, in that case, um, unwittingly, but obviously, the preaching of the word is discounted. As a pastor who's been in struggling churches who, and you've seen uh, the effects of solid exegetical preaching, how would you encourage, I'm thinking some of our listeners are not pastors, uh, they're, they're pulpit sitters, and how could, how could they encourage their pastors? Well, that, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, mm. Uh, Sean, because um, preaching is an extension of a man's personality and his person. And so when you come and say, you know, Pastor, we love you, but we think you ought to be a better preacher. He he hears it this way. We love you, but we think you ought to be a better person, a better Christian, a better pastor. That's how he interprets it. Oh, yeah. Um, 
That the Sunday night email. That's what that is. That's right. <laughs> and which is always hard to hear. It's the wounds yeah. of a friend and they hurt. Um I don't know if there's a way to do that. Uh now I think, you know, um networks like um Together for the Gospel or uh, Twin Lakes Fellowship and so forth. Those those are probably the most fertile venues for a guy to go to and rub up against other men and say, you know, I I can do better. I can do this differently. And without losing face or um, going through a lot of, uh, you know, angst about whether he's called or he's a success or he can... Um, recapture a confidence in the means of grace and give himself to it. Unfortunately, um, the ministry, the pulpit ministry, is both, at the same time, the hardest job a man can do and the perfect job for a lazy man. Hmm. And a lot of churches uh, atrophy and die because their pastors are just lazy. They just don't want to do their homework I'll never forget, uh, I, years ago, I went back in 1985 uh, in the ministry only a couple of years, and I went out to the Shepherds Conference at uh, Grace Community Church in um, Sun Valley, California, where John MacArthur was senior pastor. And, and I remember in in one of the sessions, somebody said, what, what is the key to um, to coming up with good expository messages? And this this was his answer. He said, the key is keeping your rear end in your seat until you've done your homework and produced a good message. Hmm. Um, in other words, it was just dog, stubborn, steadfast, hard work and perseverance to the job was done. And there's so many other things that can compete time-wise with a man's preaching that most churches that are experiencing decline, it's because the pulpit has been inadvertently or maybe purposefully neglected because it's hard work. Yeah. You guys, if you preach two sermons like I do, and you're going to preach for 35, 40 minutes, which is probably average, yeah. you're producing two college term papers with footnotes and cross-references per week. Yep. Uh, you don't do that on a 3 by 5 card uh, at a restaurant while you're having coffee. And, uh, Absolutely not. You guys are experienced enough to know you and I can go into church and sit down and I can tell you in the first three minutes whether this man did his homework or whether he's flying by the seat of his pants. And in the long run, so can the people in the church. Um, so, you know, I, I think a minister needs to face the fact that if he's lost his zeal for the pulpit, he probably should at least get out of the position of senior pastor and do something else. Hmm. That's a harsh thing to say, but I, I think it's necessary to say that. For the good of a church. Yeah, yeah. and for his own self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, how, somebody asked me, one of the students uh, in seminary asked me at General Assembly, uh, how do you keep your edge? I said, what keeps my edge is I have to wrestle with two texts, an Old Testament, New Testament text every week, and I have to look at this text and get it ready to understand it and communicate it and while I'm doing that it's going through my life with a fine tooth comb and I'm getting um, slapped around and raked over and (laughs) examined and Hmm. cajoled and 
in, encouraged and, and rebuked long before the congregation does. Um, but if I'm just coming up with the text, three points, a story, a poem, and some jokes, I, that's not going to do anything for me or anybody else. And I'm going to get dry, and I'm going to die spiritually. And as I decline, so does my church. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a crucial point because I think that it the the Puritans understood that the man's spiritual life during the week was what made, in a sense, the pulpit powerful. That's right. Because he was that man on fire that Lloyd-Jones talks about. Mm-hmm. And it That's wasn't, right. it, it wasn't uh, that there's a relationship between the two of those, if you will. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, that's right. That Mike, is right. Mike our, our time is coming to a close here, but I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to hang up until I ask you this question. Um, okay. Because you've, you've done the book on preaching, but you've also uh, written for the past several years these uh, devotionals on prayer. Could you say something about the role of prayer in all of oh, this? Because that's, yes. uh, that's, would you yeah, say it's I, as I, vital I, yeah. as preaching? It is, it is. Now, you know, if you look at, um, if you believe as we do in the um, verbal and plenary exp- uh, inspiration of the scripture, then you believe in that the Holy Spirit was precise about not only what he said, but the words he used to say it, and even the the um, literary structure he used, like the order of words in a sentence. And, uh, you know, in the Greek way of thinking and writing, the most important thing is always put up front. We, we kind of put the most important thing at the end of a string of things, like we crescendo to that. The Greeks did the opposite. So if you look at Acts chapter 6, when the apostles were having this issue with the the, um, the Greek um, widows and food distribution and so forth, they formed this office that we think is the diaconate. Uh, they may well have been ruling elders at this office of um, pastors in the church. And they said, it's not good for us to neglect um, the, the preaching of the word to serve tables. You do this and we will devote ourselves, listen to the order. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. Mm. And so, um, you know, a man has to uh, pray before he he uh, studies. He has to pray as he's going through it. Uh, several times in a in a message, I'll stop and pray. Either I'm moved by something or convicted by something, or I'm saying, "Lord, does that." Really what it says, am I right on the right track here? Then he he prays before he goes into the pulpit. He asks for an, an you know an endowment of God's power and, and efficacy. Um what uh one author said we make the mistake is that after we leave the pulpit, we do not pray what we've said into the lives of people. Hmm. Um but our book church order talks about that. It says one of the duties of an elder is to seek the fruit of the preached word. And so I think there's something about praying. You know, I've said these things. I've laid this out before God's people. And then you pray for the Holy Spirit to begin to drive these things home. And a guy who um, preaches great sermons and doesn't pray has a double-barreled shotgun, and he's only using one trigger. He's not using the full force of the two primary means of grace, prayer and preaching, and it's interesting, uh, Archie Parrish always reminds me that uh, the Holy Spirit put prayer before preaching. So I think that's something to think about. 
Do you think the reason uh, that men don't pray today, Christians today don't pray, goes back to this whole methodological focus and prayer is just not, it, it's not the methodology that we want. It doesn't work the way we want it to. It, yes. Um, if you're busy, busyness is the antithesis of prayer. You're too busy to pray. In fact, I think um, Martin Luther used to talk about the fact that he was too busy not to pray. I think Bill Hybels even has a book out by that to mm-hmm. title, Too Busy Not to Pray. Yeah. Um but uh, but it's also just uh, a human, it's a fact of human nature that prayer is much harder work than study and preaching. Um, you look at the apostles, you know, Jesus' agonizing question, could you not wait and pray with me for just one hour? Mm. They were prayerless people until the Holy Spirit fell upon them on Pentecost. Then they realized we can't do this aside from divine intervention, and it's not our preaching that calls down the Spirit, it's prayer. So a lot of it is just that it's we're busy, it's hard work, and then we wonder, you know, it. of, of all the things I've found, uh, Sean and Matt, of all the things in my life that calls forth the most faith, uh, it's prayer. Mm. Because I have to ask God for something and then wait. And I do not like to wait. I like to see quick results to what I'm doing. And prayer just doesn't work that way. With rare rare occasion, it's a long-term investment. Um, and it's humbling, you know. Um, that's a whole nother... That's a whole nother Skype call. Yes, yes. Well, we would love we would love to have you back on, Mike. Thanks so much yeah. for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. God bless you guys. God bless you, and uh, to our listeners, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue Him through His ordinary means. 